Hi, this is Mona, and this is Aaliyah. You are listening to A Devil's Tale. Today's case is a little different. It's about the death of a conservationist from Mongolia and some of the suspicious events surrounding it. Not a lot of people have covered this because, at first glance, this might not even be considered a part of the true crime genre. However, as you start to peel back the layers, things aren't exactly as they seem. This story takes place in Mongolia. Which is the most sparsely populated country in the world, and home to the Gobi Desert and the elusive snow leopard. It's super vast, arid, and a large portion of the population remain nomadic to this day. They actually migrate and use gurs or yurts for shelter. If you've never heard of a yurt before, it's essentially a gigantic tent with a wooden frame and a canvas wool covering. The winters in Mongolia are freezing. Requiring constant fires burning, and since there are very few trees left, dried dung is burned. In recent years, there has been a big boom in industrialization, resulting in people moving into the capital and city center of Ulaanbaatar. Of the three or so million who live in Mongolia, about half of them are in Ulaanbaatar. Unlike other areas in the country, it is modernized and becoming heavily developed. The capital was home to Sumbi. A 27-year-old conservationist and researcher. On November 5, 2015, Sumbi left his home to go to the South Gobi. He was heading to the mountain range. There, he worked with the Snow Leopard Conservation Foundation and its partner, the Snow Leopard Trust, and tended to around 20 snow leopards. Unfortunately, Sumbi never made it to the nature reserve that day. Six days later, he was found lifeless in Lake Havskol. Hundreds of miles away from the Gobi, and was declared dead by suicide by local authorities. Those who knew Sumbi couldn't believe he would kill himself out of nowhere. Now, I want to be a little bit careful because I think mental health and suicide awareness is important, and it's important to note that you don't always know who might be suffering. You can be the most accomplished person with a lot going on and still be suffering. That being said, I want to go into the characterization of who Sumbi was. The team and family he had around him, and what makes this being a suicide so unbelievable. Sumbi came from a line of conservationists. His father, Tumursuk, is a biologist and a well-respected ranger. As I was researching him, I found a clip of his father, and he looks like he's straight out of a fantasy novel. The clip starts with a blur of snowfall in a remote forest, and in the distance, you see him riding closer to the camera. He's an older man. He's dressed in a green robe, and he's riding on top of this gigantic snow white reindeer with huge antlers. Whoa! That doesn't even sound real. It doesn't. It was so majestic, and I was watching. I'm like, this is his dad, and you get a sense of how in touch his father is with the nature around him, and you see a lot of those traits in Sumbi. And then you see in the obituary from Snow Leopard Trust, this is a quote: "He climbed the mountains like an ibex. He ran on steep slopes where most of us would barely manage to crawl. He cared for the snow leopards and ibexes as if they were his own. He helped his colleagues and communities selflessly. He was a young, promising researcher who hailed from the water-rich Kovskol province, but had taken to the arid Gobi Desert as his second home. He was our treasured mountain climbing machine. 
We had never imagined we would need to use past tense while describing him. So he had started working with that trust when he was a student in 2009 as an intern. He was 21 then. And it was a very diverse international team. So people from Mongolia, but also people all around the world. From the day that he started working there, he picked up all the protocols and all of the things that they had to do for the science and research very quickly. He became a full-time member in a couple years. He really had an accelerated growth. And there are so many stories of how strong, intelligent Sumbi was. So I'm going to read a few of them. When water holes in the South Gobi froze over during a harsh winter, Sumbi carried several hundred pounds of ice up the mountain so the animals would have enough to drink. Another one was he was routinely tackling sharp inclines, carrying 50 kilograms of water and salt on his back while holding a massive piece of ice in his gloved hands to restock the camera traps his team set up. Not only was he super strong and compassionate, he was also very educated. He had enrolled for his master's degree and was the lead author on well-respected scientific papers. So he was becoming a very legitimate scientist. He studied in India. He received a grant and studied in the U.S. So he had this really bright future ahead of him, this international community that loved him. If he didn't kill himself, who would be targeting him if he's this loved? Sumbi had been targeted multiple times before his death. The first attack was just a year before his death. And it was four men who brought him at knife point in central Ulaanbaatar, the capital. And they stabbed his neck and arm and left him to bleed out. He was there for hours and he regained consciousness, barely made it home after hours of bleeding out. Fortunately, he pulled through after surgery. But despite not knowing what happened, the attack was brushed off as completely random, potentially a robbery or gang activity. And this is a note from his sister. So she was studying ecotourism in the U.S. at the time. So when he went to do his studies there, he met up with his sister. And his sister had noticed he'd been wearing his collar popped the entire time. And she pulled it down. And when she did, she noticed a large scar on his neck and wanted to know what happened. She also noticed a very similar scar on his arm. And so he told her, allegedly, someone tried to kill me. But after he saw how she was reacting, he changed his mood. He became cheerful and said, no, don't worry, sister. I'm alive. I'm here now. There's nothing to worry about and tried to brush it off. I think you can tell by the way he's brushing it off too. He really doesn't want to make anyone worry about him. He thought this was a random attack. So he's just trying to move on. Or maybe he knows, but doesn't want to get his family members involved. Well, later that year, he was attacked a second time. Again, in the capital. This time he was abducted by men in a black van and they took him out of the city and they were wearing masks. And this is a retelling of what happened by Sumbi. He wrote an email to the director of the program he was working at. And this is a translated version. So some of the translation is a little rough. He says, how do you do director? How is everything? What's new at work? I would like to tell you something really important and request some days off. I hope you understand my situation. I think it even concerns my life in danger. On Monday evening, I was abducted by two anonymous men with black cars, and they took me somewhere I don't know, somewhere far from the city. 
After that, they kept me for an hour or two in some place with a lot of noise. During that time, those two abductors started to threaten me, saying something like, You think you were the shit, but you were nobody because we are the people in the city. We are people who control everything. You can't do anything. We will show you who we are. I was so scared and terrified that I did not know what was happening and I did not resist them much. Since I was not resisting them, they stopped and I heard that one person was on the phone with someone else. And a little later, they put me in the car again and went back to the city and they told me that run and never look back. I was in so much shock that I wanted to run away from them as far as I can. Now I think back, I think they dropped me around T Street. Well, briefly, this is what happened. And on Tuesday evening, I went straight back to my family. Therefore, I would like to stay with my parents for a while just in case, but please don't tell anybody that I went back home. I think it's better to keep quiet about my whereabouts. I think those abductors found out that I'm in the city from my Facebook, and I have some suspicion that those abductors are people from a mining company. Thus, I would like to stay with my family, and would you please accept my request for time off? Sincerely, Sunday. So this is where you first see the mining industry as a potential, but they're definitely trying to scare him, it seems. Also, I just think it's kind of funny as a millennial requesting time off. And he's literally like, hey, I think someone's trying to kill me. Can I have some time off? I'm worried about my life. That's millennials life in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of cracked up at how he wrote it. So that was the second attack. There was a third attack. Holy shit. Yeah. He never called the police after all of this? He did, actually. I'll kind of get into that in a little bit. Is kind of evident by all of the dedication that he showed earlier with carrying everything up the mountain. He is so committed to his cause that they're unable to scare him away. Third attack was in April 2015. Sumbi was riding down the mountain, and when he reached the bottom, two masked men were waiting for him. They slashed his sides, but Sumbi drove on, riding until the adrenaline wore off. It turned out he had been stabbed multiple times. He was able to reach for help and was flown to the hospital by helicopter. His parents described the damage as one wound below the chest was 4.5 centimeters deep, right belly 2 centimeters, and left belly 3.5 centimeters deep. Because police didn't recover any evidence or prints, they assume he inflicted those wounds on himself. This is how the police began their theories that he was suicidal. The police had this one kind of view of him, which is radically different than how his colleagues viewed Sumbay. So according to the police, he was a maladjusted fellow who kept making false claims of being attacked. And none of these attacks were seriously investigated and no one was ever apprehended. So who were the men attacking Sumbay? His parents said, We think that his death was caused by the conflict between snow leopard habitats that he was protecting around Mount Toast and mining interest. We think this was a premeditated murder by mining and ninja miners. So the habitat his parents are referring to is the one located in the Gobi Desert. It's a very cold winter desert and home to snow leopards, often referred to as the ghosts of the mountains. When these snow leopards are present because they're apex predators, it shows that it's a really healthy ecosystem. 
Because they're apex predators, these snow leopards do tend to attack livestock. This particular area is filled with a bunch of nomadic herders. And because there's no trees and because it's arid land, they can't rely on produce. So they have to rely on livestock livestock near snow leopards, the snow leopards are going to attack the livestock. And so sometimes in order to protect their livestock, the herders will kill the snow leopards. Part of Simbi's work is to protect these snow leopards and to protect the environment. So that could potentially cause conflict with the nomadic people in that area. So some recalled this and they said that this could be potential to why he was murdered. The group of researchers and his colleagues actually wrote an official letter to the Mongolian government because they so much believed that he did not kill himself. This tension was listed as one of the reasons. So Clyde Golden, one of the authors of that letter, said he could be aggressive in his work, but he was always trying to do the right thing. If he was anything like his father in his conservation work, I can understand why people might be put off who weren't interested in conservation. However, on the flip side, not everyone said that this was the case. Badrul Yandan, chair of the Ulaanbaatar Tourism Association, said, I met many herders who fully supported Sambi and his work, and they actually came together to fight off mining companies. And to kind of give some more background on that conflict, Toast Mountain is the important source that maintains the ecosystem. So if it changes, it can really imbalance, potentially even destroying that region forever. So that's why it's such an international hotspot for conservationists. And the snow leopard is endangered. Technically, it's been removed off the list, but according to scientists, there are only 3,000-ish, a little more, left in the world. There are about 900 in Mongolia. And even though Toast Mountain is not that big, it's home to 22 to 25 snow leopards, which means it's the highest density of snow leopards in the world. Right now... There are 44 licenses trying to be issued, and there are 22 licenses, mining licenses that are actually approved. So if you think of that in ratio to these snow leopards, it's really insane, and it's a small area. 22 already approved in that region? Yeah. And so what a big part of what somebody was trying to do in addition to his conservation was to get this registered as a preserved national park to fight against the mining. And that is a huge reason why his parents and he had these suspicions that it was the miners and that association who was after him. I'm pretty convinced. I don't know Mongolia's politics too well. I just know that if this was China... The police is probably paid off by the mining company. That's why they're so quickly to declare that he committed suicide. But I don't know if Mongolia is the same way. Honestly, that makes a lot of sense. His dad started doing his own investigating. They also requested an autopsy. So in his father's investigation, he found a cell phone. And on the cell phone were recordings that were done by Sunbei. And one of the recordings was right before he died. And it was transcribed and translated. And this is what was on that recording. Today I was held as a hostage. They threatened my younger siblings, said they would harm them. I recognized them. They were the same people who had held me as hostage before. I don't know what's the reason. I have no idea what's really happening. 
If the police did their job better, this wouldn't have happened. I would not be in this situation. Police not doing their job, just wasting time looking for small bickerings instead of focusing on the bigger problems. Seems like they had their mindset wanting to kill me. I think I'll be killed today. People with the boat are coming. And that's all that was left on that recording. If I were to play devil's advocate, it could also be the translation that's a little bit off. But this also could be someone who is suffering with mental illness. That's true. But then it makes me wonder, how would that person constantly be coming back with these physical, you know, stabbings over and over again? Did the autopsy ever... So the autopsy did come back and it was revealed that he died by drowning, which was not the same way the police said he had died. The police said he had died from being too drunk and that he killed himself. With what? They didn't specify. Whereas with the autopsy, it's very clear he died from drowning. I mean, I know with autopsies, they just say the last or the main contributor. So could he have drowned himself? That's a possibility. And the question now is, after he died, did more permits go through? So actually, after he died, because it became big news, they were actually able to limit the mining. And so you are more towards that someone killed him. I think so. The other thing that it was really hard to research, there's no real formal investigation by the police. And so everything is kind of by internet sleuths and family. So of course, it's going to potentially be more biased that way. And a lot of the, it, there were some articles, but a lot of it was on blogs or on forums. And then having to translate it made it hard. I'm sure. And did you come across anything where there was somebody who sort of strongly advocated that he may have had mental illness? Not one note of it other than from the police. Everyone else just spoke how accomplished he was and how committed he was. Pretty much every comment of people who had interacted with him, they're just like, well, he was great. And interestingly, the comments were in all different languages, too. So you had a lot of people who wrote in English, too, so I could read it more easily. They all just said that he was amazing. But you know, that doesn't mean you don't have mental illness. So it's hard to say. And there were some documentaries that his colleagues had put together, and they were linked on YouTube, but all of them had been taken down. To all of our listeners, thank you for all of your support so far. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at a devil's tale. Please say hi in the comment section and feel free to DM us. If you have any feedback and story requests, you can email us at a devil's tale at gmail.com. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe if you have enjoyed all of the stories so far. Thank you so much for tuning in again and we will see you next time.